0: Good evening Boston, welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon, thanks for tuning in. Tonight we begin with transportation. We are one day away from the Orange Line shutdown to focus on safety repairs starting Friday at 9 p.m. Since the fateful announcement earlier this month, Orange Line riders have waited with bated breath on alternative ways to get from home, work and school. MBTA and Boston officials have met daily to devise plans for immediate support. Last Friday, Mayor Wu and Chief of Streets Jashka Franklin-Hodge announced Blue Bikes as a travel method. Blue Bikes will offer 30-day passes at no cost to the public during the shutdown. The passes will provide riders with unlimited 45-minute trips. Blue Bikes staff are making themselves available at key Blue bike stations within the city to ensure access to bikes and bike parking. Passes will be available at bluebikes.com forward slash join or within the Blue Bikes mobile app. To protect riders, the city is also instituting pop-up bike lanes that will separate riders from car traffic using barrels. You can expect to see these bike lanes on Columbus Ave and Stewart Street between Clarendon Street and Church Street, as well as Back Bay's Boylston Street from Dartmouth Street to Arlington Street. The MBTA has also announced two major shuttle buses between Oak Grove and State Street Government Center and between Forest Hills and Back Bay Copley. Shuttles are available at no cost to riders. Commuters are also encouraged to please take the commuter rail where they can. During the shutdown, riders can travel on the commuter rail at no cost by showing a Charlie card or a Charlie ticket on board. And Boston MBTA riders can reach out to the city with any issues, questions, and ideas at at boston.gov. Good luck out there. In other news, the Massachusetts primary election is on Tuesday, September 6th. Are you ready? Voters have several options to make their voices heard this September. In-person early voting, voting on Election Day, and ballot drop boxes. In addition to these means, the Votes Act has added 20 new voting precincts, raising the number from 255 to 275. With more places to vote, the city is alerting voters of possible changes to their precinct and polling locations. The act has also made vote by mail and early voting permanent features. The voter registration deadline is Saturday, August 27th. Residents can register in person by 5 p.m., online by 11.59 p.m., or by mail with postmark date August 27th. For more voting details, you can visit boston.gov forward slash departments forward slash election. Meanwhile, Mayor Wu is taking bold steps in climate action. On Tuesday, the mayor announced her plan to file the Home Rule petition. The effects of climate change are undeniable. Boston is facing more intense storms, rising sea levels and floodings in coastal communities such as Dorchester, the seaport in East Boston. The Home Rule petition would give the city power to set building standards to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in new developments and major renovations in Boston. On site combustion of fossil fuels in buildings makes up more than a third of greenhouse emissions in Boston, which contributes to local air pollution and global climate change. Tuesday's announcement brings the city closer to its 2050 carbon neutral goal. As I stand here with my colleagues, who are working hard to improve the environment, the health of Boston residents, to build a strong local economy, and the list goes on. I'm always aware, once again, of how connected we all are. Yes, we need to build more affordable housing so our residents can stay in Boston, thrive in Boston. However, if our buildings are making the environment worse, then we have not succeeded. Together, we need to imagine and create green, sustainable, healthy communities that benefit us all. The good news is that Boston is taking action. The work that we're doing to achieve climate justice will potentially mean fewer weather emergencies and fewer heat islands. So people in neighborhoods like Mattapan and Roxbury will be less likely to to suffer heat-related illness. Climate justice also means fewer harmful airborne pollutants and green gas green gas, gas emissions, so communities like Chinatown will eventually lower, note lower rates of asthma and respiratory illness. Climate justice also means a safer, healthier, and more equitable Boston for generations to come.
1: Because it's just not about saving the planet, although that's a pretty important thing to do, but it is about the public health aspect. It's about the financial aspect and job growth. Good climate policy will save lives because of better health outcomes. The green economy is thriving and is regularly overperforming the regular S &;P 100 and all the funds associated with it so this is something that's really good policy it's good for business it's great for the city and we must do it for the planet:
0: And more from City hall the festivities from last weekend's Dominican festival lived on in Tuesday's Dominican flag raising ceremony. <laughs> Pride soared as high as the flag at the Dominican flag-raising ceremony. The energy was electric as attendees danced and waved their flags and beat. The ceremony, held entirely in Spanish, was a moment of visibility and culture appreciation for Dominicans all over the city. Tuesday's ceremony was the first flag-raising since Mayor Wu's ordinance to codify policy on flag displays.
1: It's so important for us to continue our pride and culture, whether it's the parade going down Center Street in Jamaica Plain, or doing the flag raising here on City Hall Plaza, because it reminds our youth, those five and six year olds, why it's so important to be Dominican and carry that legacy throughout their life. I actually uh, was raised in Dominican Republic until I was 16, and I think it's really important to bring our culture to the city that we love um, and pass it down to generations and our children, because it's a, it's a big thing for, for us and in our households, and that sense of pride of um, belonging to our community and missing
0: where we come from. In education, Studio B and Fenway Sports Management wants to shout out some special teachers on the honor roll. Boston's new school year is right around the corner. The summer is a much-needed break not only for students but our city's hard-working teachers. September through June, educators work tirelessly shaping minds and making impact. Studio B and Fenway Sports Management wants to recognize these teachers and is seeking nominations of exceptional educators for the New England Educator 2022 Honor Roll. 30 finalists will be selected, and three will receive a grant for their classroom and be recognized at the Wasabi Fenway Bowl game on December 17th. Nominees can be anyone in the education field, a nurse, custodian, librarian, and more. To nominate an individual teacher, you can visit fenwaybowl.com. We take you now to part two of my interview with Sammy Nabolsi on the effects of climate change in Boston. Sammy Nabolsi is a partner at Boston law firm Rose Law Partners LLP. He focuses his practices on environmental, land use, and real estate litigation, permitting, and government regulation. In addition to his practice, he is chairman of the Boston Lobbying Compliance Commission, a member of the Boston Industrial Development Finance Authority's Board of Directors, and treasurer and board member of Historic Boston, Inc. He's a resident of Roxbury. Here's the interview. Uh, in, re- in regard to the areas of Boston that are being affected, uh, I, f- I remember like the nor'easters in 2018 yeah. that just whooped a lot of the city. Uh, what communities are you most concerned about? And what can residents of these neighborhoods do to protect themselves and their property?
2: Right. There's a lot of talk and focus, I think, on your coastal communities and and what is that in Boston. It's, you know, it's your downtown, your waterfront, North End, East Boston, Charlestown. The projections are very grim when you start looking at 2070 and 2100 uh, in Dorchester along the Neponset. Um, But depending on which impact of climate change you look at, I would I would go so far as saying as I I'm very concerned about every community in Boston when it comes f- to the impacts of climate change because with climate change we're also going to see things like extreme precipitation and frequency of of extreme precipitation events. And so all of your communities in Boston that are along rivers or streams or in areas that um, um, are near, uh, near rivers or streams, they're going to experience what is called inland flooding, which isn't necessarily tied to sea level rise, but it's tied to being near rivers, streams, and facing extreme precipitation events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Also, there's the whole conversation around the city's stormwater system and its ability to take on extreme precipitation events. And th- that may result in backups, which may also cause more increased flooding. And then heat. You know, you look at neighborhoods like like Roxbury, Mattapan, lots of parts of Dorchester. They are, you know, what is frequently referred to as heat islands. I mean, there are parts, in, you know, during the summer where, you know, Roxbury is going to be, is going to feel, maybe not necessarily, but feel 10, 20 degrees warmer than somewhere downtown or closer to, to the water. And So depending on the impact of climate change, every community uh, is going to feel an impact. Hmm. Uh, that impact just may differ. Um, you know the question, what, what can our communities do? I, I think there 's there's, there's quite a bit to be done. One of, the, one of the most difficult parts, I think, for Boston in responding to the impacts of climate change is going to be it 's it's a, it's a mix of two things. One is, the city doesn't own all of the waterfront property. In fact, most waterfront hmm. property is owned by private developers and also the state. The city, in order to really adapt the city to climate change, whether that be you know coastal resiliency structures, engineering structures, what have you, it's going to require a lot of buy-in from private mm-hmm. developers and the state because the city can't just build on someone else's property without right. you know what is called the government taking, and that's very adversarial and controversial. And I don't know to what extent that's on the table. Um, and I, I think so much of what needs to happen is a lot of community buy-in, that this is a city-wide problem. Yes. And despite the fact that we all have private interests and private properties, we all really seriously need to work together, come together, and understand that, yes, while this is your property, there's something you need to do on your property that's actually going to protect dozens, if not hundreds, of people behind your property. Right. And I think there needs to be serious conversation about that. And, and, and something that I encourage every, you know, every community, every city resident to do is, you know, number one, start with getting educated on these impacts. One of the best places to go, the city of Boston has had this initiative since, um, I wanna say 2016, because I believe it was an outgrowth from that first report of the Boston Research Advisory Group called Climate Ready Boston. Okay. And Climate Ready Boston is you know, kind of broken up into phases. The first phase was, what are the impacts of climate change? The second phase was, OK, now let's look neighborhood by neighborhood. What can we do to respond to the impacts of climate change? And then the final phase, which is happening now, is implementation. Let's put these things into, into effect. You know, I would recommend every, every person in Boston, go read the Climate Ready Boston reports for your community. They're very digestible, but it helps you understand, how is my community going to be impacted? and then my specific property, where does it fall into these impacts of climate change? But then part of the Climate Ready Boston uh, process is it's really rested and leaned on community engagement and involvement, uh, because it does. It's not, uh, climate adaptation in the city of Boston is not gonna happen by the city telling people what it needs to do right. and hoping everyone is going to you know volunteer. It's gonna require a, a really massive community effort to do that. Um, so I encourage everyone to you know read the Climate Ready Boston reports and then get engaged in that process. So you can everyone has stake in this, but I don't know that everyone knows what their stake is in it. Right. Um, and I think by getting educated and reading through those Climate Ready Boston documents, people will begin to understand that, and uh, and then just get engaged. The city has so many opportunities for people to get engaged with their climate initiatives, resiliency and adaptation initiatives. Uh, and people should take them up on that offer. And then finally is uh, get engaged with development review in the city. Mm. You know, when projects go before zoning boards, conservation commissions, air pollution control commission for parking, you name it. As we all know, um, a big part of the reason why building housing in the city of Boston is difficult and expensive is because there's so much there's a lot of important process to it. Yeah. Um, you know, we may disagree on wh- what of that should change and what shouldn't, but there's a lot of process, and that process is meant to engage and include the public. Um, but but it, it's it's not useful if people aren't showing up and saying, wait a second, you're not you're you're proposing cutting down every tree on your lot. What is that going to do to uh, shade and cooling in our neighborhood? Yeah. You know, wait a second. You're going to build something on the waterfront, and you're going to. Um, you know build this wall that's going to displace water to neighboring properties wait a second no I want I'd like to be heard and I'd like to see that changed I think it's really important for members of the community to get engaged in review of specific projects in their neighborhoods because every project will have an impact beyond the lot line of that project especially when we're talking about climate change flooding heat inland flooding you name it
0: all right so Homework to do, read the Climate-Ready Report. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And there's tons of them. Um, but what's great is that they're,
2: they're neighborhood-focused. So you don't have to sit there. If you live in Roxbury, um, read the documents that are applicable to that area. If you're in East Boston, read the documents and proposed projects applicable to that area. It's, it's really wonderful information and, um, and, and very eye-opening.
0: In food, Dine Out Boston is coming to a close this Saturday. Dine Out Boston, formerly known as Restaurant Week Boston, is brought to you by the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau twice a year, providing locals and visitors an opportunity to sample area restaurants at special prices. This go around was from August 7th to the 20th. But as I said, this is your last chance to take advantage of delicious deals at participating restaurants, offering indoor or outdoor dining options. Offering takeout and delivery service. For more information on participating restaurants, www.bostonusa.com forward slash dine out Boston. And for our final interview for tonight, Brian Boyles leads Mass Humanities, working with communities, scholars, and supporters to advance the council's mission. Brian joined the organization in 2018, following 11 years at the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, where he served as publisher for 64 Parishes Magazine and directed public events at the Louisiana Humanities Center. Along with leading partnerships with the Smithsonian Institute, uh, the Coastal Restoration and Protection Authority of Louisiana, and the New Orleans Film Festival, he is a past contributor to Oxford American, Vice.com, the Brooklyn Rail, Commonwealth Magazine, and the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Now, I got to sit down with Brian to talk about Mass Humanities and the historic $700,000 grant they received earlier this month. Here's the interview.
1: Mass Humanities is a nonprofit foundation. We serve the entire state, creating opportunities for people in Massachusetts to transform their lives and build a more equitable commonwealth using the humanities. We really believe that this is a state with really rich history. Uh, It's a global uh, center of ideas. And we want to get as many people as possible access to participating in that history and growing those ideas through the grants and the programs that we provide around the state.
0: Excellent. And can you speak more as to the importance of the humanities in our current environment?
1: We know, we're such challenged times right now. And when we think about the power of the humanities, we think about stories and the ways that stories provide navigation for all of us to make our way through the world, to preserve the traditions we've inherited, to send messages to people in the future. We look at our history and we know that right now, a lot of people are looking at the past for answers. A lot of folks feel that a different story needs to be told. The humanities allow us to engage with one another We really uh, have always served as a bridge from the great things that happen in uh, higher ed out into the work that the public wants to do. So ways that people can come together to talk about where they've been, their views on current crises, the things that have happened in their towns, and use literature and philosophy and history to really work through those problems together. Our work is always about engaging with the public. And I think that the humanities more than ever uh, are in demand and certainly really relevant to the many crises that we're facing as a people. Hmm.
0: And earlier this month, it was announced that Mass Humanities received a $700,000 two-year grant for their Expand Massachusetts stories. Uh, Can you talk about the impact of this grant and the types of projects that can be supported with it?
1: We're really grateful to the Bar Foundation uh, for their faith in this initiative. Expand Massachusetts Stories was launched last year as part of a three-year strategic plan that said very clearly that we believed that all people need to be a part of this story of Massachusetts. and so we need to elevate these stories actively so that more of us can learn from our neighbors. The first grants that we gave in September of last year, I think are a good zam- example of where we're heading and where the Bar Foundation funding will really allow us to grow a lot more projects. And I can talk a little bit about Uh, what we hope to see uh, in in years to come through this funding. So far, we funded really a robust and I think diverse uh, array of projects. So it can range from uh, looking at the role of uh, Great Barrington in the life of W.E.B. Du Du Bois. Right be a deepening of our understanding of slavery and the lives of enslaved people in Medford at Royal House uh, and Slave Gardens. It can also be uh, newer stories. You know, uh, what did uh, parents in Chelsea go through uh, during the pandemic and living through many of the vulnerabilities that that community faces? A documentary film uh, called Chelsea in a Central City was funded through an Expand Massachusetts Stories Grants. Oral histories are so important right now, You know, both the ones that we go back and re-examine to say what did we neglect as folks in the Berkshires at the Berkshire Historical Society have been doing, to newer stories where, again, we say, what was your lived experience at this very difficult time? That could be Jewish residents in Boston who once lived in Dorchester and want to make sure that we look back and remember all the different lives that have coursed through Massachusetts More than anything, I think Expand Massachusetts Stories uh, puts a lot of the power of the humanities into the hands of our residents and says, what are the stories that are important for you? How can we put that into a bigger context and understand that this very diverse state is changing and that we can't really build a more equitable Massachusetts if we don't have an equitable approach about who gets to participate in its past, who gets to tell that story, whose voices are heard. So Expand Massachusetts Stories, I think, is very much of this moment The funding from the Bar Foundation specifically, I think, allows us to work with smaller organizations. So we know that a lot of the folks we uh, support uh, come uh, from staffs of one or two people. You know, they don't have a, 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 a lot of resources or there are organizations like health and human services organizations, immigrant centers that maybe haven't always turned to the humanities and are now seeing that stories could be really powerful. The Bar Foundation is going to allow us to really clear the way for those folks to get funding organizations that are led by people of color and serve people of color are going to be primary in a lot of that funding. It's a way for us to say. Yes, we all need to know the stories, but it's important who drives those stories and that those folks have uh, a lot of funding and a lot of opportunity to be heard around the state.
0: I love that so much. Uh, The preservation of old stories and uh, the platform making room for smaller organizations who might not have the opportunity to do so. Um, Well, we've, we've seen many arts institutions take a big hit during this pandemic. Uh, And I'm curious as to how uh, COVID-19 influenced uh, your process over at Mass Humanities.
1: You know, I give a lot of credit to my staff. I think they've been incredibly smart about finding new ways that we can contribute. And really, I think, importantly, ways that we could streamline the opportunities we put out there. So we know that, you know, you or I or anyone else in the state has been going through a lot. And if you want to do cultural programming or keep your museum alive or welcome people back to your library, build a new website for your cultural center, We want to make sure that that funding is available and is easy to secure the pandemic for us, um, obviously, was a big challenge, but it was also an opportunity for us to do more. We received substantial funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities to do COVID relief. So over two years, we provided almost three million dollars in funding that was much more in excess than we've ever done before. And importantly, it was less reliant on the projects you and I just talked about and more to save jobs more to make sure that people were able to keep their staffs in place operating funding was not something we had done before we learned a lot about the people we support by doing that and i think we've emerged as an organization that is more flexible it certainly knows more about the communities we serve and hopefully it's seen by those communities as a partner as an ally as we try and work through the rest of the pandemic
0: wonderful and you already spoke a little bit about expand massachusetts stories in addition to uh, that Uh, that program that you have. What other grants and programs are offered at Mass Humanities?
1: We have three key initiatives that I think are really important, and I feel like they all align in many ways with Expand Massachusetts stories. Uh, Next month in Essex, we'll be launching a six town tour of a Smithsonian exhibition called Crossroads that'll look at the challenges rural communities have faced over the last 100 years. That's a partnership with the Smithsonian that we're excited about. We have an initiative called Reading Frederick Douglass Together, uh, which really, I think, built on a longer tradition of Black communities reading Douglass's Fourth of July speech around Fourth of July. We were invited to join and support that tradition uh, 13 years ago. We supported 24 of around the state between Juneteenth and the 5th of July this year, and that allows people to really confront the legacy of race side by side with their neighbors and using this really powerful historical text by a figure who lived and raised children here in Massachusetts. I think something that's driven most of our thinking actually is our Clemente course in the humanities. And that's done in six cities around the Commonwealth, uh, in Dorchester, New Bedford, Worcester, Springfield, Brockton, and Holyoke. This is an opportunity for folks from lower-income households to come and take evening classes in the humanities, earn free college credit from Bard College, but I think most importantly, take their place as leaders in their communities using history, philosophy, literature, critical thinking as a way to understand themselves to improve their own incomes and really to advocate for the places where they live. So Clemente, I think more than anything, has made us rethink who a humanist is. It's all of us. And none of us should have any barriers towards accessing all the wealth that is um, available when you do sit down to read and talk with your neighbors.
0: Oh, yes, you can say that again. And uh, for individuals and organizations who are interested in learning more or possibly applying for a grant, how can they do so?
1: You can go to MassHumanities.org, and my staff is always willing to talk to people and help their ideas come to fruition.
0: All right, wonderful. Executive Director of Mass Humanities, Brian Boyles, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks again. I really love talking to you.
0: Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, RCN Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. You can also listen to the radio, or the news on the radio, I should say, at 7.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. on WBCA 102.9 FM. For BNN News, I'm Faith Maffadon, and I'll see you next week.